You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that's super. Thanks for asking. Bombs are flying. People are dying. Children are crying. Politicians are lying, too. Cancer is killing. Texaco's spilling. The whole world's gone to hell, but how are you? I'm super! Thanks for asking! All things considered, I couldn't be better, I must say! I'm feeling super! No, nothing bugs me! Everything is super when you're... Don't you think I look cute in this hat? Hello and welcome to another super sweet episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show covering the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. But this week, we're going to put a special emphasis on the first Green Lantern. Yes, this issue is the 50th anniversary issue of Green Lantern, and it sports a tale of Alan Scott. So, not only does that make it special in the fact that it's an anniversary issue, but it's also special in the fact that we're going to be talking about some of the changes that happened now in Scott over the recent couple of weeks. But before we get to that, let's play a few promos and get that out of the way so we can get to talking about this controversy. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at two truefreaks.libson.com. The funeral is over. Jonathan Kent is on the mend. So, uh, how's Clark's father? Oh, much, much better. Lois has returned home. Lois, over here! Harry, why? When did you start meeting your staff at the airport? How'd you know I was returning on that flight? A good editor checks out his answers, Lois. I got a hot story of once you straight away. I'm parked over here. But just as Metropolis has learned to live without the Man of Steel... I know, there was only one Superman, but Metropolis just hit the jackpot. Because we got four Supermen now, and nobody knows which of them, if any, is the real McCoy. Four beings of incredible power and intellect have laid claim to the Man of Steel's name. 
the last son of Krypton. I live. The Man of Steel. Man of Steel coming through. Nobody moves. This is a bust. The Cyborg. Yes, I'm Superman. I'm back. The Boy of Steel. Put me down. Listen, pal. Don't ever call me Superboy. Capiche? The reign of the Superman is upon us, and so from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast begins its epic coverage of this last act in the epic Death and Return of Superman saga. Every week, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, along with the best and the brightest in the podcasting community, will cover this event in all of its forms, from the comics to the novelizations, to the audio drama, and beyond. Superman is back, but is any of them the real Man of Steel? Find out on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, located at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. It was for this moment that we were created, but I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might Beware my power Green Green Lantern's Lantern's Light Green Lantern's Light A monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, Jon Stewart, Guy Gardner and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today Say the oath Join the Corps Green Lantern's Light Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com Two thousand and ten, the summer of fun. Two thousand and eleven, the summer of great, great men. And now, two thousand and twelve brings the summer of speed. Coming to better in the dark. 
betterinthedarksite.com and earthq.net. Better in the dark. Eat our dust. And welcome back. I'm sorry the intro ran kind of short. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I got the song in and didn't overlap it. But before we get to the issue itself, let's go open up the mailbag and, well, I guess the virtual mailbag, and see what kind of mail we got this week. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. (laughs) And surprisingly enough, this week I got a couple of emails. The first one is from Ben Perlman, and he writes, I love listening to the podcast as Green Lantern is one of my favorite characters, specifically Kyle, and I look forward to it every week. Well, thanks, Ben. I look forward to, you know, delivering it to you every week. Well, I mean, not delivering it, but recording it and letting you listen to it. On with the letter. While listening to your older podcast, I remembered a Superman issue, which starred uh, Hal Jordan and Guy Gardner, and took place during the early issues, which I found to be a good read. It was Adventures of Superman 473, and he puts in quote, or puts in parentheses, I'm sure From Crisis to Crisis covered this ages ago. Very short description, Superman is contacted by Green Lantern and goes to Guy, and together they go look for Hal. Keep up the excellent work, Ben Perlman. Well, thanks, Ben. I appreciate you listening to the podcast. And yes, I believe Jeffrey and Michael, I can't believe I forgot his name for a moment there, did cover that issue in episode number 67, I'm looking here, of Up From Crisis to Crisis. So if you want to go back and listen to that, you know, make sure to go to the Superman homepage website. That's where they've got all the uh, episodes archived, and you can download that one there. Or probably go to iTunes or whatever feed you like using. But uh, again, Ben, thank you for listening. I'm glad to have you on. And uh, again, I can't wait to get to the Kyle stuff either. It's going to be fun. And then after that, I got an email from a good friend of the show and great writer, Mr. Steve Rogers. Yes, again, not Captain America Steve Rogers, the other one, the cooler one. And he writes to say, hey, Sean, first loving the guest spot on From Crisis to Crisis. Well, I am horrible at promoting myself, so... And also, there were some issues with the recording, which they'll talk about it. But if you want to hear more of me rambling on about Guy Gardner, go download the latest episode of From Crisis to Crisis. At least the one that's, well, came out last week. I think it was issue, or issue so, number 137. Yes, 137 in a row, as Jeffrey so succinctly put at the beginning. But that issue covered uh, Action Comics number 688, I believe, which was an issue that starred Guy Gardner, and Michael and Jeffrey were kind enough to have me on the show, and we talked about that, and the uh, Man of Steel, or the Man of Steel annual as well, and uh, I'll let you know that one of the issues was really, really good, and one of the issues was Man of Steel. It wasn't that good. But uh, Steve continues on. He says, anyway, some time ago you were looking for feedback concerning getting a Facebook account, and I thought I'd offer some belated thoughts. First, you could always just do a page for the podcast that people can like, or a group that people can join. Or as Andrew Leyland and From Crisis to Crisis, both Mike and Jeff have their own accounts, and this was before the whole creating pages that fans could like took off, have done, and make your regular profile that people can friend the name of the podcast. Andrew literally can be friended at Hey Kids Comics. That being said, I think the th- better thing to do is to get on the horn with the administrators of the Forum for Geeks site and give just one of the guys a forum home there. No worries about jumping into the wacky world of social networking world there. Anyway, been meaning to send my two cents in on that, so there you go, Steve. 
Well, thank you, Steve. I actually really put some thought into setting up a site at Forum for Geeks. There is a really great community of podcasts. Not only are Two True Freaks and Views from the Long Box up there, as well as Hey Kids Comics, but they've got Half Hour Wasted and The Legion of Dudes. They used to have Too Old to Grow Up, which Ken, who's an administrator, administrator at the site, helmed for a while and was a really great podcast until it just un- unfortunately kind of went away. But that might be a, well, kind of a way to get my social media out there rather than getting into Facebook. And as, as I think I've said before, it's not that I'm a Luddite and don't enjoy dealing with people. It's just I don't enjoy dealing with Facebook. I've had too many people tell me about unwanted things that have been posted on Facebook, and I really don't need any more aggravation in my life. So maybe I'll look at the Forum for Geeks route. Sounds like a good one. But what also sounds like a good one in my horrible segue of the week is Green Lantern number 19. Now, this is a double-sized issue that's been broken up into five different chapters, each of them dealing with a story from the point of view of one of the Earth-based Green Lanterns, either Jon Stewart, Hal Jordan, or Guy Gardner. So, let's go ahead and get into it. Green Lantern number 19. Green Lantern number 19 was cover dated December 1991. Its cover price for the double-size issue was $1.75 U.S., $2.25 Canada, and £1 UK. The title of the book was Lantern's Light. The writer was Gerard Jones, the letterer was Albert de Guzman, colorist was Anthony Tolan, editor was Kevin Dooley, and this time the cover art was done by Gil Kame and Jim Woodring. We'll go ahead and start out with Chapter 1. The penciler for Chapter 1 was M.D. Bright, and the inker was Romeo Tangal. Green Lantern John Stewart is breaking up some fights between two of the races on the Mosaic world on Oa. After he takes the antagonist to a science cell to cool off for a while, John flies off while monologuing about how his life is going. He muses about the loss of his wife Katma, again, the bravery of Hal Jordan, and the brashness of Guy Gardner and why either of them wasn't chosen to watch over the transplanted Owen cities. But, as his mind is wandering, he's contacted by the spectral image of Alan Scott, Earth's original Green Lantern. Alan tells John, Your eyes are wasted counting scars. Raise them up and look for me. Wondering what all of that meant, John decides to head to Earth to try and track down some answers. Okay, rather than saving all my notes for the end, I'm going to do notes after each chapter. It's a little different, and this chapter is a bit shorter than some of the other chapters, so my notes won't be all that much. But first of all, with notes, I've got to say that after Joe Staten, M.D. Bright and Romeo Tangal are perhaps my favorite artists on this book. Perhaps my favorite artists in this run of Green Lantern so far. They've got a really clean style, they do a really good job without making it too overly done and overly detailed like Pat Broderick does. All the artists in this issue, well, save for one that I'll get to, are really, really great, and I think if you pick up this book and you're a comic book fan, you'll enjoy the artwork in it. But page-by-page notes, we'll go page one, panel three. The yellow aliens that were from the race that Haranjo from the Mosaic storyline were from are finally given the name, and the name is the Blobbles. Yes, 
the Blobbles. Not the most interesting alien name, but there it is. Then, of course, on pages two and three, we get John being all Moby again. He's talking about Catman, him losing her, and the destruction of Zanchi, and how he's had to live in Hal Jordan's shadow, and how Guy Gardner is even probably more of a well-known lantern than him, and damn it, John, just get over your mopiness. You're a cool character. I, I thought you got over this a couple of issues ago at the end of Mosaic, but obviously not. Page 4, panel 2, we get the spectral appearance of Alan Scott, and man, Bright and Tangle knock it out of the park. Alan looks really great, and he's his big purple, you know, Dracula cape just looks amazing. It is flowing all over the place. Alan looks incredibly cool here. It's a it's great artwork by these guys. Uh, in my opinion, Alan doesn't look any better in this issue. This is good. But that's the end of chapter one. Let's move on to chapter two. And chapter two's artist was Pat Broderick. Synopsis is, Green Lantern Hal Jordan is out looking for new recruits, as well as bemoaning John's attitude and Brick's clinginess. Thinking that some fresh blood would be just what the Corps needs, he stops by the planet of Murg to try and recruit some of the brave denizens of that planet. But as he prepares to use his ring to translate his intentions to an approaching spacecraft, the craft hails him with a thick Brooklyn accent. Remembering that his last trip to this planet was when he and Alan Scott came here to save a Mergian princess from a forced marriage, Hal realizes that the reason for the dialect is due to the influence of their new king, <sighs> Doiby Dickles. Yes, that Doiby Dickles. The Alan Scott sidekick has turned the planet and its people into walking, talking New York stereotypes, including a replica of Ebert Stadium complete with Brooklyn Dodgers, which happen to be playing today. Hal, Doiby, and the princess sit down to watch the game and reminisce when they are visited by the visage of Alan Scott, saying, Your hands are full with pulling leashes. Let them run, and look for me. In order to keep the Mergians from freaking out, Hal claims that he created the light show meant for the end of the game too early due to his unfamiliarity with baseball. Crisis averted, Hal decides to head to Earth to investigate. But... Doiby decides to tag along, and offers Hal a lift in his space-faring cab, Goitrude. Hoping that no one in the Justice League sees him, the two head off for Earth. As I said before, Broderick's art is good, but I like Tankalls and Brights more. <laughs> Broderick's art is a bit more scratchy, and there's a lot of detail, but unfortunately I just don't dig it as much as the others. And plus... This doesn't seem as really as good as some of the stuff that were in the early issues. This might have been rushed as trying to get it out as a 50th anniversary issue, but I'm not really certain. The artwork just isn't as good as his prior stuff. And the artwork problems, at least with Broderick in this part of the issue, are really brought to a head on page 7, panel 2, where we get this perspective shot of Hal flying towards the, well, I guess towards the viewers, and his feet look like they've been sucked into a black hole. I mean, his feet are really tiny. It's just, I know he's trying to show depth of field and perspective in the artwork, but it's 
really Hal must be like 12 feet tall because his feet are really tiny or maybe Broderick just took some art tips from Rob Lightfield you never can tell also here there's an editor's note saying that the issue that dealt with Alan Scott and Hal Jordan coming to the planet of Merg and <sighs> Doivy Dickles becoming the king was covered in Green Lantern comic number 45 called the I'm sorry, called Prince Peril's Power Play. Now, this was a Silver Age comic, and obviously a pre-crisis comic, so I'm wondering how all of this happened. I mean, was this continuity not wiped away with the crisis? I mean, I know Superman started over with a new origin and everything, and I know Alan Scott and the rest of the JSA were basically dissolved after the crisis, so what happened? I'm hoping when Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner start up their Tales from the JSA show again, and they delve more into Crisis on Infinite Earth, that answers to questions like these will be resolved. Then of course, same page, panel 3, we get the reintroduction of Doy P. Dickens, Alan Scott's goofy Brooklynite sidekick. <sighs> Was... Was like Woozy Winks or Etta Candy Nut available? Could we not get a more humiliating stereotype in this book? I don't know. Not to not to dump on Alan Scott and Golden Age comics, but some of the sidekicks back then were just goofy and unnecessary, and sadly, Doivy fits in with all of them. Page 9 is Hal flies Doivy and the Princess over the planet of Muriki sees essentially everything has been changed into 1940s-slash-50s Brooklyn. I mean, there's a boardwalk, there's basically Coney Island, hot dog vendors, and of course Ebert's Field, where the Merg Dodgers play. Thank goodness the Prime Directive wasn't effective in DC Comics, otherwise we'd have a great big gold piece of the action scenario right here. Page 10, panel 2. I guess Prince Peril from the Green Lantern issue, number 45, that was mentioned pretty previously in editor's notes, is now the pitcher for the Merc Dodgers, so neat. And on this page, there's also a lot of baseball talk between Hal and Doivy, and since I don't follow baseball or really care, it's kind of lost on me. And then finally, on page 14, panel 3, Hal and Doivy are going to fly to Earth, in a 1930s cab called Goitrude. Again, I don't get Golden Age comics. I guess it's not for me. But that's the end of that chapter, and the next chapter is obviously Chapter 3. This time, the chapter is penciled by Joe Staten, woohoo, and inked by Art Nichols. In space, no one can hear you scream. Which is a good thing, because Green Lantern Guy Gardner would be making some racket if he could. Frustrated over the obligations of being a grand Green Lantern of Earth, Guy tries to ease this tension by power-ringing a passing meteor. But after he destroys the passing space rock, Guy sees an image of Alan Scott saying, You closed the door to keep out warmth. Now open it, and look for me... Guy thinks that he should ignore the strange vision, but decides that it would be better to try and investigate it. Cut to Hollywood, where Todd Rice, 
better knows as the shadow superhero Obsidian, is auditioning for a director. Claiming that he doesn't need any more two-dimensional actors, the director dismisses Todd. Todd then meets up with his sister, Jenny Lynn Hayden, the heroine Jade, to discuss their failed acting careers. But who should fly by to interrupt their conversation but Guy Gardner? Telling the duo about the image he saw in space, Todd and Jenny relate to Guy their parentage, having their mother being the Golden Age villain Rose, and Alan's wife being the Golden Age Harlequin. Guy then does some guy-like speculation about Todd and Jenny's genealogy, which results in Jane trying to blast Guy with her green energy. But before a brawl can break out, John Stewart flies in and separates the group. Relating that he hasn't had a visitation from Alan as well, the two lanterns head off to find Alan's wife. Of course, Hal and Doiby aren't far behind, and the three lanterns and the cabbie head to the home of Molly Scott, the Golden Age Harlequin. After some chit-chat about Alan's disappearance, Molly shows the lanterns a message that Alan left her. It's a green flame construct that says, I am needed. I will return. I promise you. She also shows them the other thing that he left behind, his lantern, which bursts forth an image of Alan, saying that it's a portion of Alan's soul connected to the battery due to decades of psychic intimacy. The image tells the group that Alan is off fighting an endless battle and asks if anyone can find him. Guy, incensed, wonders why they should try and look for him. After all, that's just one more Green Lantern on Earth to steal his thunder. Plus, Alan got a ring that didn't have the yellow impurity, and he didn't have to answer to the Guardians. The image questioned why the Green Lantern doubts Alan Alan Scott's worthiness and says that he will show them why he's worthy to be a Green Lantern. The image tells the trio to focus their willpower so that they might travel back in time. So how? John and a reluctant guy sink up their rings and pop out of existence. By now, it must be pretty apparent that I am a big fan of Joe Staten's art, and in this issue, that sentiment doesn't change. Staten really knocks it out of the park, and as I've said before, he draws the best Guy Gardner that I have ever seen. Whenever I envision Guy Gardner, Joe Staten is the guy drawing. But with notes, let's go to page 15, panel 3. Alan's image has been giving each of the lanterns sort of cryptic messages that basically tell them what they can do with their lives to easily fix all their problems, but unfortunately Guy is being too stubborn to listen to the image and take advantage of the advice. Page 16, panel 5. It's kind of neat as Todd and Jenny are walking out of the studio audition that we see Blue Devil walking past them. It's it's a nice cameo, especially if you know the origin of Blue Devil being a stuntman who was wearing the Blue Devil suit, who got the suit fused to his body and couldn't take it off. I don't know all that much about Blue Devil, but I remember reading at least that about him when I was reading my issues of the Justice League of America. Skipping ahead to page 20, panel 5, we get Doiby introducing himself to John Stewart. I guess the first time these two ever met, and... He says that his last name is Dickles, with one S. Because if you think of his last name with two S's, it would be Dickless. I thought that was 
a kind of nice amount of subtle humor that Jones threw in there, playing blue without being too overt. Then page 23, panel 2, we get the image of Alan Scott saying, I sense him in battle. I sense an endless round. I sense eternity. I can sense no more. Can anyone find him? I think this is a subtle reference to the retconning that Alan, along with the rest of the JSA, was off fighting Ragnarok. And basically, that's the way they tied it into them coming back in the JSA series. So, it's a neat sort of setup for that idea, but I'm not certain if it's actually what they were doing or whether it was a retcon at the time. And finally, just a general note about this chapter. Guy really is being a giant tool during this. I mean, when he approaches Molly Scott, Alan's wife, he says that, you know, he saw Alan's ghost. Now, of course, that sets Molly off and thinking that Alan's dead. But the Green Lanterns don't know whether Alan is dead or not. So Guy's just being really insensitive and you've got to kind of think that the injury plus the stress of dealing with the JLA and the breakdowns and the added stress of him being the new Green Lantern of Earth are just taking his toll on him. So we're going to see some things happen to him pretty soon. Of course, this leads us into Chapter 4, and the penciler for this one is Martin O'Dell, and the inker is Romeo Tangal. The four lanterns appear on the hilltop in ancient China where they observe a battle about to rage between two opposing forces. The fight begins, but before too much damage occurs, the Green Lantern, Yalan Gur, a red, dragon-like humanoid, steps in to end the encounter. Oddly enough, his ring isn't affected by yellow or wood, and the Lizard Lantern easily defeats his foes. The image of Almond tells the trio that the yellow impurity was something the Guardians put into the batteries as a safeguard, and because they trusted Yelan, the Guardians removed it. But the power went to Yelan's head, and he meant to shape Earth to his design by keeping the people there in a constant state of war. The Guardians stopped this by implanting the vulnerability to wood into the ring, so when Yelan was attacked by the clubs of the peasants, he was helpless. As he flew off into space before tending his wounds, he cursed the Guardians for betraying him, and then he fell back to Earth, burning up on re-entry and melding with his power battery, which became the Green Meteor that would eventually become Alan Scott's battery. And in this chapter of the book, we get a retcon retelling of the Alan Scott origin story. I believe it was never mentioned that Alan Scott's battery actually was linked to the Guardians in any way. Originally, the idea was the lantern was supposed to initially bring death, then bring life, then bring power. And Alan being the third person to find it was the person who got the power from the lantern and the power from the ring. The introduction of this character, Yalan Gur, the sort of very Chinese-looking red dragon bipedal creature, just basically links the original Green Lantern with the modern-day Green Lantern by saying that there was a connection to the Guardians somewhere there. The other general note that I have to say is Martin O'Dell, I know he's the guy who originated, along with Bill Finger, the Golden Age Green Lantern, Alan Scott, but his artwork just doesn't do it for me. It's very, 
very golden age, very cartoony, and really cra- clashes with the modern style of Broderick and Bright and Staten even. But as for page-by-page page notes, page 26, panel 4, here is an example of Nodell's artwork just not doing it for me. In this panel, Guy Gardner looks like Rondo Hatton. Now, if you don't know who Rondo Hatton is, if you've seen the Rocketeer and you've seen the big guy with the really long face, you'll know kind of what he looks like. Rondo Hatton was an actor back in the 1950s, I believe, who started in some horror movies as The Creeper. Uh, some of you might remember him from Mr. Science Theater's seventh season episode, The Brute Man. Rondo suffered from a condition called acromeglia, I think, which caused his body to grow at a greater rate than his actual internal organs could support. It led to this sort of uh, elongated face and really tall look. Uh, it gave him kind of a creepy look, and unfortunately, that's the way that Odell is drawing Guy's face. It's not pretty. Then, same page, panel 5, uh, the description of Yaban. He's a red bipedal version of one of those Chinese dragons that you'd see in you know, Chinatown walking down the streets in a parade. And I guess the neat thing is he's rocking the midriff-bearing belly shirt. So he's a hip Chinese dragon from ancient China. Page 28, panel 2. We get a picture of Yalan finding this weird botanical teeth-bearing yellow alien that I'm pretty certain that Jeff Johns took one look at and said, hey, I can adapt that into parallax and basically turn the comic book medium around. Yeah, I think this might be the idea of the yellow impurity being implanted. This might be where Jeff Johns got the idea for parallax. And then on page 30, panel 6, we get <laughs> we get Yolan getting hit on the head with a piece of wood and it hurting him, and unfortunately Yolan really doesn't look like a dragon, he looks more like an H.R. Puffin Stuff character. If you don't know what H.R. Puffin Stuff is, Google search it and prepare to be horrified. But that's about it for that, let's go on to chapter 5, and for chapter 5 the artists, artists again were M.D. Bright and Romeo Tangal. The Lantern brings the Green Lantern trio back to Molly's home. Three lanterns share what they have learned, all Dr. Phil style. John says that he needs to let go of striving for perfection. Hal says that he needs to let the core evolve rather than trying to make make it in his own image. And Guy, well, Guy says he's learned nothing. Except he won't admit that he learned that he should let people get close to him and stop hating himself and taking it out on others. And with that, Guy flies off leaving the group worried about his attitude, and Hal wondering how he can take back Sector 2814 from the troubled Guy. But unbeknownst to the duo, Guy had just got a signal from the Justice League, summoning him to help in a fight against Despero, and maybe this time he can prove himself, if not to the League, at least to himself. At the same time, John and Hal had their separate ways in space, with Hal certain that John has the job of keeping peace on Oa well at hand. But before Hal can head off, Doivy flies up in his cab and wraps up the story as he and Hal race back to Merck, determined to catch the end of the Dodgers game. 
I don't have too many findable notes on this last part of the issue. Just that Bright and Tangal bring the art back. Like I said, they're probably my second favorite artist in this book, and they really do a good job to make the conclusion of the book. Also, Guy really did learn something, but damn it, he's just too macho to admit it. It's kind of sad. But that ends my notes for the issue. Let's go ahead and take a look at the ads before we get on to the big issue. Uh, in the front cover, well, the front inside cover, we get... Bo has finally decided on his favorite game, and it's one of those old LCD handheld games for Bo Jackson 2-in-1 football and baseball. Now, back in the 90s, Bo Jackson was a professional football player who also dabbled in professional baseball. He was pretty good at both sports. I remember him to be more of a football player, though. And this is one of those LCD games where you basically got two buttons for things and you basically move your football player left and right on the field as these little LCD characters try and tackle you. Or you play baseball and try and hit the ball and move around the bases. It's not Game Boy quality, but it'll shut your kids up on those long car rides. And I'm certain there are plenty of parents who were buying their kids these games on summer vacation. Later in, we get the ad for the Game Genie. Again, the cartridge that you, you would link to your NES cartridge that would allow you to put in cheat codes for the games. I think we talked about that last issue. And then we get the Slam, Wham, Jam, Fleer basketball card series. It's a two-page splash, so more basketball cards. Then a couple pages more, we get to win at this game, you've got to use your head. And this for is for the game Decap Attack. This is one of these early Sega Genesis games that was trying to start up a, well, a lineage, sort of like Sonic, but it just really didn't have the staying power. It's your basic side-scroller where you play this zombie, I guess, who can take his skull head off and use it as a throwing weapon to defeat these other monsters. I don't think I ever played it, and I'm guessing that it was just one of those original games that Sega put out that really didn't catch on and sort of carry on throughout the years. However, it is a neat bit of nostalgia, and an example of Sega trying to break the mold of the classic Nintendo games. Then, surprisingly, we go through a lot of pages till we get to a full one-page one page splash of The Adventures Continues on Saturday Mornings. It's Back to the Future, the animated show on CBS. And this was basically a, well, a Back to the Future animated show where... Marty McFly and Doc Brown would get in the DeLorean along with Einstein and go through adventures in time. Usually they'd end up meeting one of the Tannen relatives and learning about history. It was a fun show, I remember, and one of the neat things was that they got Christopher Lloyd to actually do the intros for the cartoons. So, kind of a neat show, but as I'm looking here on the internet, I don't think it's ever been released on DVD. Might be on Netflix. I know it's probably on YouTube. So if you want to search it out, it's there for the taking. Next page, we get the ad for Great Eastern Convention's comic book schedule with November 2nd and 3rd in Boston with guests Mike Barron, Larry Stroman, Paul Chadwick, Sam Keith, and more. Then it gives shows in Minneapolis, Minneapolis, San Francisco, St. Louis, Paramus, and then the biggest show of the year, New York. 
January 10th, 11th, and 12th of 1992. They don't list any guests, but I'm certain there were a bevy of people there. Later on, we get the HodgePodge page, which has a new one, a new ad for gags, jokes, and magic. You just send in $2 for the new catalog containing thousands of practical jokes, magic tricks, gags, illusions, and unusual items. So, if you had two bucks in the day, you could send off for some magical crap. After that, on the next page, you get the subscription page for the DC Comics, and it's all the big ones, and uh, the uh, Impact Comics are represented there, too, so you could collect those as well. The letters page, oh, by the way, this time is replaced, instead of letters, it's replaced with a Strange Schwartz Stories, The History of Green Lantern, written by one Mark Wade. You know, I have not read it yet, I need to read it, but... Most anything penned by Mark Wade is at least bound to be interesting. Also in the letters page, they give basically creator biographies, and they talk about Gerard Jones, M.D. Bright, Pat Broderick, De Guzman, Gil Kane, Art Nichols, Jim Woodring, Anthony Tolan, Romeo Tangal, Joe Staten, and Martin O'Dell. So, if you want to know about these characters, or not characters, about these creators, you've got a sort of mini-biography back there. Then on the back inside cover, we get a kind of dark brown, bug-eyed-looking scientist holding a, well, another one of those handheld LCD games. And this one is for Simpsons, The Simpsons, Bart vs. the Space Mutants. And it's some of the acclaimed handheld games. They've got The Simpsons, Terminator 2, Smash TV, WWE, or I guess WWF at the time, Royal Rumble. So, more LCD games meant to keep kids quiet while you're in the car. But then on the back page, we get the ultimate handheld game. It's the non-color, non-advanced version of the Game Boy. And it's got some pretty cool games on here. It's got Gauntlet 2, Paperboy 2, Clax, Marble Madness, and the Tom Cruise classic, Days of Thunder. Yes, the original Game Boy was colorless, had really bad graphics, but it did cement Nintendo as the premier handheld gaming system out there. But with that, that covers all the ads in the book, that covers the synopsis, and it basically leads me to what's going to be hopefully not a diatribe that's going to get me in trouble, but a diatribe that I felt that I should address nonetheless. If you've been following comics over the past couple of months, you've known that both DC and Marvel have promoted gay characters in their comic. Well, not really promoted. With Marvel, the character of Northstar, who's been out of the closet for quite a while, and has been in a serious relationship with his male partner for quite a while as well, has finally come out and is going to marry him. It's a hot-button issue, but... The fact that Northstar was a gay character that was developed over time and that he's now just getting ready to get married is an interesting deal, but not really unheard of. I mean, he was a gay character, gay marriage was going to eventually happen, and it did. So kudos to Marvel for doing that. But DC also... I think wanting to be on the bandwagon, decided that they were going to do something with a gay character as well. And in my opinion, they didn't do it as well as Marvel did. What DC did was take the character of Alan Scott, 
who with the new 52 had basically been wiped from existence, and put him as a character in an alternate Earth, essentially Earth 2, and make him a gay character. Now, it was just sort of synchronicity that the issue that we covered today dealt with Alan Scott. If this weren't the case, probably the only thing that I would mention about this would be that they changed the character of Alan Scott. But because Alan is kind of important to the Green Lantern mythos, I thought I'd take a little bit of time and go over what I think is good and bad, good and bad about the change. Initially, the good thing is DC is promoting a gay character. And not just a gay character, you know, who's a small part of the DC universe. Alan Scott is Green Lantern. And on Earth 2, he's the Green Lantern. This means we're going to have a prominent figure in the DC comicdom who's going to be openly gay. And to be honest, I think that's a perfect way of promoting acceptance, especially in the comic book medium, and hopefully promoting it in the real world as well. However, here's where my positives end and my negatives begin. And I think my biggest negative is the fact that this just happened suddenly. It was a thing where we rebooted everything and everything has changed, and we've just decided to switch something, completely 180 from the way it was. Alan initially was a family man. Obviously, in this issue, we know he was married. He had two kids. He grew up in the, as a hero in the Golden and the Silver Age, and even into the Bronze and the Modern Age. And he has a legacy behind him. And the fact that DC, in their wisdom or whatever, decides that they can just flip a switch and turn him gay really does a disservice to the whole idea of being gay. If they had taken a character and initially hinted at them being gay or had them evolve into openly being gay, I think that would have been a much better story. I mean, just taking a character that has a history of nearly 70 years and then suddenly turning it all around and throwing it away just does a disservice to the character and basically demeans the, I guess, the amity you're trying to win by making this character gay. Now, being that Alan Scott originated in the 1940s, you would kind of think that even if his character did originate or was originally gay in the 1940s, he probably would have had to have hidden that. If this were the case and they would have carried it on that he was actually gay, but he was just hiding it, and then eventually he came out, that might be a more interesting storyline there. But no, that doesn't seem to be the case. They just changed him initially, kind of turned him young, and said that he was gay. Plus, we have to deal with Obsidian, who himself, in the DC continuity, was a gay man and had a relationship with another man. In fact, a loving relationship with another man. So... That was something that's now wiped out because the Alan Scott of this Earth 2 never had any children because he was gay from the beginning. So basically DC is kind of, well, they're mishandling the character. There are so many characters in the DC universe that DC has put time and effort into 
in writing an interesting, enjoyable character, but also making a part of their character their sexual orientation. Uh, on From Crisis to Crisis, the show I was on a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Maggie Sawyer, who is a detective with the uh, Metropolis Special Crimes Unit. Initially, when she was introduced, you kind of got the hint that something might be on with her, that she might be a little butch. I mean, she did have a kind of look and style that didn't really look as feminine as the other characters in the book. In the issue that we covered on the issue of From from Crisis to Crisis, she actually pretty much came out and said, I'm a lesbian. Now, this was something that developed over her character over a period of time and wasn't the forefront of it. With Alan Scott, it seems that this is not something that's developed over time. It's just something that they've thrown in, and it seems that it's going to be at the forefront of it. The one thing I don't want Alan Scott to turn into is the Rawhide Kid. Now, from what I've read, the Rawhide Kid was one of these Marvel Western characters that they kind of decided to do the same thing that DC is doing with Alan Scott, just suddenly make him gay. And unfortunately, he turned into one of the most horrible stereotypes of gay characters of all. I mean, he became a swishing ninny, and it really betrayed the history of the character, and just, I don't think really would have enticed, you know, I can't be certain, because I'm not a gay man, but I don't think it would have enticed any gay men to want to start reading the comic. And I really question whether changing Alan Scott is going to bring in a contingency of gay readers either. It just saddens me that DC has decided to take a character that's iconic and, you know, basically one of the older statesmen of the DC universe and turn him gay really for I don't know what kind of reason. But... But sadly, recently a lot of the decisions DC has been making about their comics and their characters have just not been sitting well with me and have sometimes been outright confusing me. But, however, I'm not confused about these issues of the comics. All the issues that we've covered so far have just been fantastic, and I know we've got more to come. So, I won't promise that this will be the last diatribe that I have against DC, but hopefully I won't be having too many of them too soon. Uh, Finally, I'd like to say that, unfortunately, like a lot of these books, this comic, to my knowledge, has not been reprinted, so you will have to go to your local comic book shop and try and find a copy of it if you want to read along. This was a long one. (laughs) That's what she said. (laughs) Or I guess, you know, I could make a joke and say that's what he said now that Alan Scott is... Uh, I'll, I'll drop it. It, it. One last thought. The whole Alan Scott thing really doesn't bother me one way or the other. I'm neither happy about the change nor saddened by it. And I guess that is kind of a statement on the way society views homosexuality now is that no longer is this something we get outraged over or something to be, you know, clamored for. It just is what it is. And I think, honestly, that's a good thing. But I know what's definitely a good thing is 
we're going to be back to normal size and normal length issues. So, next week, we come back with a five-part story of Hal Jordan leading into issue number 25, where Hal and Guy throw down. And with that, I bid you farewell till next week. Thank you all for listening, and here's the ending credits. Talk to you later. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know. All feedback to the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too. As long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and leave a review on iTunes. I'll be sure to read it on the show. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you can obviously spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was I'm Super, Thanks for Asking by Matt Stone and Trey Parker, from the movie South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. If you'd like to see the movie, you can rent it or buy it from iTunes, or better yet, go to twotruefreaks.lipson.com, click the Amazon link at the top of the page, and you can either download the song, download the movie, buy the movie, or buy the album from there. You'll be helping out Scott and Chris and making sure that all the listeners respect their authority. Respect my authority!